Hi, I'm Tatiana Antonelli, and you're listening to Forward Talks by Goombook. A quick thanks to our partners, R-Space. R-Space is the first co-working space designed to connect humans with nature. Find out more at rspace.org. We no longer live in a world where social purpose is separate from profit. Not only are businesses that cause harm to the environment put under tremendous public pressure to change their ways, we have also started to see evidence that sustainability is actually beneficial to the bottom line. Research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology shows that 37% of businesses are reporting profits from sustainable initiatives, and one in two companies have adapted their business model to be more sustainable. A great example of how social purpose and profitability can come together is Neutral Fuels. Its founder, Carl Fielder, is a serial entrepreneur, having successfully started and sold multiple software companies before his wife challenged him to do something to save the planet. But as Carl himself says, he's not an environmentalist, so he wanted to find a venture that could meet the same criteria for success, innovation, a strong market need, and profit. I sold my last company in the IT industry at the end of 2006. I went on holiday with my wife and my three young children, and we sat in the swimming pool uh, in an ice villa somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, and my wife said, you really need to do something more important than making money. Now, that's quite an interesting challenge, really, because what could be more important than making money? And I said, well, darling, I, I don't know what you mean. And she said, we've got three children. Have you not seen Inconvenient Truth? Have you not listened to what's going on? Have you not listened to the CEO of Marks & Spencer's at the time who said, this is plan A because there is no plan B? Um, you read the Nicholas Stern report. So this was end of 2006. There was a lot of really good motion to try and analyse the challenges of climate change. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. Everybody that's trying to save the planet doesn't seem to make any money to me. They sort of hug trees and they save orangutans and they're worried about palm oil, but, you know, they don't make any money and I'm interested in making money. And she said, well, if you think you're so darn clever, why don't you work out how to make money and save the planet at the same time? And so that was how we started. We put together our holding company uh, at the end of 2006 and started thinking about the problem. And really that's what's led me to today uh, and where we are today. We've, we've not only thought about the problem, but we've actually been involved in trying to solve it. And solving the problem, that's what I'm interested in. I'm with all respect to everybody in the world who cares about orangutans and cares about all these other things, I actually am just focused on trying to save the planet. I'm not trying to solve the 101 problems we've got as a species because that's all complicated. There's 50 million Indonesian people who are totally dependent on income from the palm oil industry in Indonesia. If we ban palm oil, they will lose their livelihoods. So one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which is about ending poverty, will have gone into reverse and will have just made 50 million people more poor. So how do we solve that problem? I don't know. But what I can do is I can say that, according to a Carbon Disclosure Project report that was issued at the end of 2017, 71% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988 have come from just 100 companies. 71% of our problem has been caused by 100 companies. So I thought, well, maybe we should just actually be thinking about what companies do and how companies behave. And so at the start of 2007, I had an excellent opportunity to sit with the CEO of DHL, John Allen, 
And John said, Carl, I think that there's a, a challenge here with the fact that our business effectively moves things around the planet. We use planes, trays, automobiles, ships, and that's creating a big carbon footprint. Can you come up with a strategy for us to reduce that? So the first year we spent measuring it, and in the base year which we used, which was 2006, we found that DHL's carbon footprint was the same as 46 countries put together. So one company where the CEO was having coffee with me every month and the CEO runs a board of directors who actually sit in a room and make decisions, one company had the same footprint as 46 countries. So this was just, for me, reaffirmation that I was on the right track. That if we can get some of the world's biggest companies to actually take carbon emissions seriously and come up with plans in place to significantly reduce or get to a net zero position, then we stand a chance of saving the planet. Carl makes a strong case for prioritizing how we save the planet. While we have many causes, many challenges, and many problems to solve, all of this only works if we prioritize correctly. A lot of the other stuff that goes on, I, I don't know how the Dickens is actually going to impact saving the planet. I look at all the great publicity that's happened in the last year, from one sea turtle with one straw up its nostril has caused a massive change in the way that people want to use plastics. And you know what I'm going to say next. It's terrible. Plastics use is ridiculous, and throwing it into the ocean or letting it be thrown into the ocean is terrible. But that doesn't save the planet. I think it saves it in a different way. There's a very famous comedian uh, that says, the planet will make it. It's just going to, you know, scroll human out of its back. And it's going to make it. It's going to evolve two, three more million years, and it's going to come back with some sort of life. We, as humans, are the ones who need to worry right now. And the plastic problem is not a problem for the planet. It's a problem for us humans, for our health, for our survival. We're not going to have fish anymore in 20, 30 years. Uh, We're not going to have food. We're not going to have water. In, In just a few years, some countries are already zero water cities, and water is rationed. And this is why my strap line is I'm not an environmentalist, I'm just trying to save the planet, because you may be right that in 20, 30, 40 years' time we're going to have a serious problem with fish. But according to the world's best scientists working for the United Nations, if we don't stop using fossil fuels within 21 years, we will go over a tipping point and we as a species won't be able to live on our planet anymore. I don't actually care if there's no fish if I can't live on the planet. That's the problem of prioritisation, and the same with most of the sustainable development goals, is they are very, very important things. I want to end poverty. I want more women in the workplace. I want all these great things, but I want a prioritisation because solving all the world's problems is a big issue. But the biggest issue at the moment is the increasing rate of CO2 emissions because that causes... Everything else. Everything else is secondary in nature, and that's where I come from. The examples that that we use are how can we do this in a way that doesn't terribly impact people? Because, as you know, and you've been a great shining light on trying to get people to change their behaviour, most people still don't care. And trying to make the whole planet care about one or two or three or even ten issues 
is quite tricky, and I would guess it's going to take longer than we've got left. So by looking at the way that businesses interact and the fact that some of these businesses, and as you, I mentioned DHL, but we've also done some fabulous work with McDonald's as well and with uh, Anglo-American and with Lockheed Martin and with Ikea and with Marks & Spencers and with some other really great brands, these businesses have penetration into nearly every country in the world. And their business decisions are made in relatively small rooms with a relatively small number of people. And you, if you can influence those people to make different decisions, they can impact millions of consumers. That's easier than persuading the millions of people to change something. But, and don't get me wrong on this, if there was no pressure from the millions of people, the companies wouldn't change. So we have to do both. We have to be out there driving change from effectively the bottom up, from the consumers pushing the companies to do things. But we also have to show the, the companies what level of change we're expecting. And that has to be done on a financially viable basis. They are not going to go zero fossil fuels tomorrow if there is no viable alternative for them and if it doesn't make commercial sense. So this morning I was reading that IKEA in India is going to start delivering all the goods with electric rishos and electric cars. What do you think about this? Is this uh, better or not than using, for example, biofuels? Well, I think it's a great step. And I think that using electric vehicles anywhere in the supply chain is a really good thing. The problem is that for most of IKEA or any of the other big companies' supply chains, the bulk of their carbon footprint is not in the delivery to the end user. It's getting the goods from wherever they're made in Sweden or wherever out to India to start start off with. So some of their goods um, will be going by road. Many of them will be going by sea. And the, the low-carbon options for sea transport and for freight transport on the roads are very few and far between. So, for example, when I was working with DHL in 2008, we did an electric truck trial. Um, so we had two electric trucks, and they were great. They were really, really successful. They worked well in the applications uh, that we used them for. And so we went back to the company that was making the electric trucks, and in that year, DHL had 200,000 trucks. And we went to the company making the electric trucks and said, we'd like to order a few. And they said, well, our annual production is 250. And we said, well, we'd like to order at least 5,000. And they said, we have no way of scaling our factory, getting the, the, the vehicles themselves, or getting the motors, or getting the batteries. We've got no way of scaling to that size. I think their annual production today is 1,000. So they've managed to grow 400% in 10 years. Well, applause to them, but that's not going to solve the problems of any of these large organizations. So you come back to what can a caring company like IKEA do today. In the rest of their supply chain, when it comes to road freight, there's only one viable alternative, and that's to use biofuels. They're, it's not so much that, that we're the best alternative or the worst alternative, but biofuels is the only alternative you've got to fossil fuels today with the existing vehicles, with the lifetime of the vehicles that you've got. Um, and that's what we came to the conclusion 10 years ago when we moved out here. Finally, you were able to establish a facility. And who was your first client? It was fun and games. And I have to say, if it wasn't for the visionary support of the leadership in Dubai, we would have never got there. Um, we persuaded 
a few people to really champion this and a few people put their own necks on the line and said, OK, we think this is worth doing. And on our behalf got us all the permissions that we needed to be able to set up the factory. And we simultaneously um, got very friendly with McDonald's. We, we knew that we wanted a supply, a regular, consistent, high-quality supply of waste streams. And McDonald's, to us, looked like the most logical partner for that. Um, they have one of the world's best supply chains internationally. Uh, they call it the daily miracle, the fact that they feed millions of people on every day and predominantly the end product is produced by somebody who's, res who's the end result of a supply chain that goes all the way back to a farmer's field and everything has to be working properly for that daily Big Mac or whatever to be delivered to the customer. McDonald's UAE were just fabulous. They... They took a while to realise the opportunity of this, but since we, they committed to it, they've just been fabulous. Um, they've changed some of the way they do things, but most of what we did was to try and fit in with their existing restaurants, with their existing ways that they operate, so that this would be seamless for, for them. And the great thing is that for eight years now, if you've walked into a McDonald's anywhere in the UAE and bought your Big Mac and fries or whatever it is, the transportation component of delivering that food to the restaurant was zero in terms of carbon footprint. And you, as a customer, didn't have to change anything. And this is coming back to my logic of if I can get the big companies to change, we can reduce their carbon footprint without the consumer making any decision at all. So how does that work? How, how can a company get involved? Let's say, how did McDonald's start? Well, it was a little bit easier for McDonald's because they produce a lot of waste cooking oil because they like their French fries and their chicken McNuggets and all the other products that they fry to be tasting as good as possible, which means that they have to keep the oil as fresh as possible so they dispose of it very regularly, which means that they have quite a lot of waste, high-quality waste oil. Um, but in terms of... How do you get a large organisation to do this? It's about discussions at the top. I mean, you, you can't start at an individual restaurant level or an individual branch office level of any organisation. You have to start at the top. And you know what we've found in the last 12 years? We will save them money while we do it. We will shine a light on things that they haven't previously looked at. And in our experience in the UAE... Because fuel has been pretty cheap for years and years and years and years, and even though people whinge about the price of fuel today, it's 350% cheaper than it is in Europe. People haven't actually tracked how much fuel they're using. They haven't looked at fuel efficiency. And we've done lots of work, not with McDonald's, but with other clients, where we look at their whole delivery fleet and we say, why does this chap's driving use twice as much fuel as this chap's driving? He's got the same sort of vehicle. He's got the same sort of delivery run. He's got the same sort of loading in his truck. What's the problem? And in most cases, it turns out because the guy doesn't drive very fuel efficiently. So he's got a very bad right foot, and he accelerates too hard, and he brakes too much, and he goes around corners too dangerously. Now, that's bad for all of us as road users, but it's terrible when it comes to the carbon footprint. What we've also found is that many organisations are losing fuel through theft, and that's because nobody's watching. So that's one of the things that we try and help organisations do, and we've used the latest technology. We have apps, we have IoT sensors, we have a cloud-based system, and we manage the way that fuel is used in the organisation because my ultimate goal is to try and help organisations use less fuel. 
So as a fuel supplier, that may seem crazy, but I actually want them to use less fuel. I want them to use less green fuel. Yes, I do. But I want them to use less fuel by managing it properly. So to come back to how can people get involved, first of all, they need to have diesel vehicles, otherwise our fuel doesn't work with them. But they can use any diesel vehicle, and indeed any generator can run our fuel. And we've used it with really old engines, we've used it with the latest and greatest, most modern engines, and without any modifications, you can use it in your vehicle. With McDonald's now, we've just finished 12 million kilometres with their delivery fleet, and nobody has had a problem with it. It's been fantastic. So with McDonald's, it's a closed loop. Basically, they give you the cooking oil, um, you transform it into a biofuel, and give it to them to run their fleet. Yes, they actually deliver the cooking oil to us, and while they're unloading it, our um, pumps are pumping yesterday's conversion into their fuel tanks. And what are the savings if, as a company, I decide to go for your biofuel. Do I save money? Is it the same cost? It's a tricky question, actually, and it shouldn't be a tricky question. Most of our customers have saved money by move, moving to our fuel, but part of that is because we supply it in a more fuel-efficient way. So we provide better management systems to them. They get access to a bunch of tools and data that would otherwise cost them a lot of money to implement. So we end up saving the money because they manage their fuel better. Um, but on the whole, our fuel is priced to try and come in at the same price that people are normally paying for their fuel. And I'd say, on the whole, fuel, fuel price isn't the primary driver of people's discussion with us. It comes up in conversation, but if they want the world's cheapest fuel, then they're probably already looking at some very dirty, grey market Im imported fuels, and we don't want to bother wasting our time with that because they clearly don't care about the planet anyway. So we would sooner work with large organisations that have really good attitude towards sustainability because they're more likely to make the most out of the tools that we provide them. And if we don't have that sort of mindset with the customer, then there's no point implementing the tools. If tomorrow the government wakes up or the, a big transportation company wakes up and says, you know what, you're right. We want all our buses, 20,000 buses, to run on your biodiesel. Do you have this capacity? Can you do it or what would you need? Not for all of them at once, but not all of them will be capable of changing at once because of the way that they fuel at the moment. So there will be inevitable logistical challenges. But we can scale to be able to cope with that and many of them would be very, very quick to adopt. I'm an engineer and I love making things simple. And the way that we've built our factory, we've upgraded it four times in the last uh, eight years. Uh, we've increased our production capacity and our sales by a thousand percent in the last five years. So I'm not scared of growing quite quickly. We've also got conversations underway to put simultaneous facilities in other Emirates other than just Dubai. And that would allow us to then scale in the locations a lot quicker because anything to do with sustainability and, and recycling, you should site the recycling facility as close as possible to the source of the raw materials and as close as possible to the demand for those finished product. The biggest challenge at the moment to being able to adopt all of the school buses is that most of the cooking oil that we use as a, a waste 
stream for our raw materials, most of it's being exported to Europe because they pay a higher price for it. And the closest equivalent I can give you to that is it's like the European Union paid for a giant mirror to be erected over the UAE to reflect the sunlight into Europe so that they could generate solar power in Europe. We've been talking about the whole transportation industry here in the UAE. Does that include uh, aviation or the shipping industry? It's a challenge. Um, Effectively, it only makes sense at the moment financially and ecologically to make biofuels from waste materials. Anything else gets you into a debate about food for fuel. In other words, are you using land that could grow food to create fuel? The trucking industry has been using biofuels now for probably 20 or 30 years and they can't get enough biofuel from the waste material internationally, globally, that's available. Now the shipping industry said, we'd quite like to use biofuel as well. Well, that's interesting, but the guys already using the biofuel can't get enough. That's the trucks. And now the guys in the aviation industry have said, our main strategy for reducing carbon footprint in the aviation industry is to use biofuel. You've got to choose. Am I going to use that raw material to make aviation fuel or am I going to use it for ships or am I going to use it for road trucks? Because there isn't enough for anybody. Why is it enough for anybody? We should all eat more French fries. That's the only answer. There's just not enough of this raw material. Even if we're very successful in converting our uh, human waste into biofuels, I still think there's going to be a shortage. And the problem that I see with both ships and with the aviation industry is if they continue to believe that their future solution is based on biofuels, which I don't think is going to happen, they're going to stop looking for real solutions. Just to have an idea, how many litres of fuel do we use, for example, here in Dubai? I'll answer the question twice. So as far as I can make out, um, in diesel fuel in Dubai, we're using somewhere between 600 and 800 million litres a month. But I put an answer a different way. If you want to fly an A380 from here to London, and I lost track, but there's maybe 12 flights a day if you count all the different airlines. If you fly one A380 from here to London, you're going to use about 100 to 120 tonnes of fuel, which is more than all of the fast food restaurants produce in a month on one flight to go to London. And we fly to lots of destinations from the UAE. So... In terms of the waste feedstock for the aviation industry, it is at least two orders of magnitude wrong in the calculation, or there's not even 1% of the raw material to make 100% of what you need. We've got lots of things that we're looking at um, to anticipate the next question, which is, can you only process waste cooking oil? And the answer is no. What we're aiming towards is processing effectively human sewage into biofuel and that will give us for the next two or three decades uh, a really good meaningful source of low carbon fuel ultra low carbon fuel that can be used in existing vehicles without any modification and that gets us to decarbonize major parts of our economy without people having to change their behavior this is so inspiring so would you be able to treat the sewage and still give away clean water Yes, the, the process effectively is that most of the um, sewage works or the, the wastewater treatment plants, they skim off what they call the fats, oils and greases. It's a, a physical removal process. There are still um, emulsified uh, fats, oils and greases in the, the wastewater, but they can generally cope with a certain percentage of that. But the stuff that floats to the surface, 
we can convert that directly into biofuel now. And this is really where we're going. Uh, the team doesn't like it very much, I have to say, because it smells awful. When we can do it smell-free, that's when we're going to build the pilot plant. So this is exactly what we mean when we say that all waste can be a resource. Yeah, literally. And the, there's no shortage unless the human diet changes, and I don't expect that's going to happen anytime soon. Unless the human diet changes, this is going to be a way of creating fuel. And the nice thing is that pretty much those fats, oils, and greases are nearly all liquid. Uh, and so the energy required in converting one carbon chain liquid into another carbon chain liquid is not that huge. In other words, the conversion efficiency is high and the energy and therefore the cost of doing so is reasonable. There's a very well-known British guy that's been doing the calculations on this and his calculation is that we need to lose 2 billion of the world population in order that we can truly address climate change. My positive news is I don't think we have to. I think that actually if we get the world's companies to adopt this, we can put climate change back into a less important part and we can then focus on doing the other really important things like ending poverty and making sure we don't have too much plastic. We all have to do our part, for sure. But what I'm really keen on is trying to get your employer, whoever it is, or your husband or wife's employer, to realise that, as the British government declared last week, this is not climate change anymore. This is not optional. This is a climate emergency. We have to do this now because our kids are going to inherit our bad decisions. And our bad decisions on whether we drive a V8 or our bad decisions on whether we use too much plastic, those are all bad decisions. And our kids are going to have to live with it. So the first thing we have to do is do something about it, and I think companies are the place to start. I think that if we all focus on CO2 emissions as the primary one of the sustainable development goals, I think if we get that sorted, we will then buy ourselves enough time to address the other ones. But it's about prioritisation. That's all we have for this week. Our thanks to Carl for joining us and thank you all as well for listening. You can find us in all our favorite podcast players, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and in streaming apps like Spotify and Ankami. You can also follow us on Instagram or visit our website, goombook.com. See you next week.